Please join me again as we bow together and pray. Our God, our holy and righteous, everlasting and faithful Father, who changes not, who made us and lavished the world with wonderful things, whose word is precious beyond our contemplation, and which is so shunned and ignored by our generation. We call upon you, O Lord, now in your power, you who are almighty and sit enthroned above the heavens, who has your will among the hosts of heaven and the sons of men, whose hand no man can stay, who rules even our governors and kings and princes' hearts and turns them with whithersoever you will. We come into your presence and ask that your word, which is powerful for the bringing down of strongholds and the casting down of everything that exalts itself against Christ and which is able to bring into captivity every thought, We pray, O Lord, that in mercy, not rewarding us according to our iniquities, not withholding your Spirit from us because of our sins, but in mercy for Jesus' sake, whose blood was shed for our sins, give your word in power by your Spirit now, and make it to go forth freely, and to run and have free course, Remove all hindrances and all obstacles from every heart, even the, the still and troublesome voice of our adversary. O Lord, come and get glory to yourself, even using the feet of clay which you have chosen, and opening our hearts to receive your word. O God, make us to see our risen Savior today by the eye of quickened faith. Make us to burn within ourselves as he speaks his word to us. Visit us, O Lord, now in grace and in power for the sake of the kingdom of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, so that even the saint may be edified and the poor unturned sinner may for the first time today lift his eyes and see Jesus for who he is and be caused to run to him and be saved. Hear us, our God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn with me, please, in your Bibles to the 20th chapter of the Gospel of John. John chapter 20. We'll read 18 verses. We, were, we will 
not read the latter part of chapter 19 because we hope to give just a brief survey of the, the event of the burial of the Lord Jesus Christ in our preaching. But let's do read these 18 verses of John chapter 20. Now on the first day of the week comes Mary Magdalene early while it was yet dark under the tomb and sees the stone taken away from the tomb. She runs therefore and comes to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved that being we believe John the apostle and the author of this gospel and says to them they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we know not where they've laid him. Peter therefore went forth and the other disciple and they went toward the tomb and they ran both together and the other disciple outran Peter and came first to the tomb and stooping and looking in he sees the linen cloths lying yet entered he not in Simon Peter therefore also comes following him and enters into the tomb and he beholds the linen cloth lying and the napkin that was upon his head not lying with the linen cloth but rolled up in a place by itself. Then entered in therefore the other disciple also who came first to the tomb and he saw and believed. For as yet they knew not the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their own home. But Mary was standing without at the tomb, weeping. So as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. And she beholds two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. And they say unto her, Woman, why are you weeping? She says to them, Because they've taken away my Lord, and I know not where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned herself back, and beholds Jesus standing, and knew not that it was Jesus. Jesus says to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom seek you? She, supposing him to be the gardener, says to him, Sir, if you've borne him hence, tell me where you've laid him, and I'll take him away. Jesus says to her, Mary. She turns herself and says to him in Hebrew, or in the Aramaic language which the Hebrews spoke, Rabboni, which is to say, teacher, or highly esteemed teacher. Jesus says to her, touch me not, literally, do not grasp me, for I am not yet ascended unto the Father, but go unto my brethren and say to them, I ascend unto my Father and your Father, and my God and your God. Mary Magdalene comes and tells the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And he had said these things 
unto her. If you were going to preach a sermon on that passage, would you uh, enter such ground with fear and trembling? And would you sense your inability to open up such a text as it deserves to be opened up? Don't you get the sense, even when we read it, that no human could ever preach this in a way that would do justice to the event and even to the narrative? We're not presuming by preaching this passage this morning that we're able to open it up in the light that it ought to be opened. But we will ask God to help us. You continue to pray as we preach it that the Lord might make himself real to every heart in this place before we're finished. Now what I want to do this morning is three things. I want first of all to introduce this message with something of a running commentary of the history of this event, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Second, I want to lay before you the moral necessity of his resurrection. He must rise from the dead. And I want to open that up a bit for our thinking. And then third, the blessed fruit of the resurrection of Christ, which is so precious to those of us who have come to know him, to believe upon him, and to love him. First, a history. Second, the moral necessity. Third, the blessed fruit. First of all, think of the history of the raising of Jesus from the dead. And the reason I call it history is because there's perhaps no event in ancient history more supported by evidence than this one. Those who think this is a matter of myth and not history have not read their history. Very few issues in history are as broadly supported and as widely witnessed as this event. He is called in several of the passages relating to the resurrection, Jesus of Nazareth in order to designate him as the man who grew up in northern Palestine in the town of Nazareth and as a man walked among men taught them worked miracles this man died was buried and came back from the dead turn with me to Acts chapter 2 and we'll refer back to this passage in John several times Acts chapter 2, verse 22, when Simon Peter was preaching the sermon on the day of Pentecost, the gospel to that crowd of Jews, multitudes who were gathered from every nation under heaven to celebrate the Feast of Weeks, as he opened up the gospel to them, declaring to them what it was they were seeing when they saw these phenomena of the tongues of fire on the heads of the disciples and heard them preaching God's mighty acts in everyone's several languages though they had not studied those languages Peter in, an, in this wonderful preaching to exp, uh, expound to them what the significance of this event was says in verse 22 and following of Acts chapter 2 you men of Israel hear these words Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God unto you by mighty works and wonders and signs which God did by him 
in the midst of you, even as you yourselves know, Him being delivered up by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you, by the hand of lawless men, did crucify and slay, whom God raised up, having loosed the pangs of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Jesus of Nazareth, a man who walked among you, you yourselves know the wonders that he did in your midst. You are witnesses to his life. That man has risen from the dead. Turn again to chapter 4 of Acts. Verse 10. <coughs> as they were answering, Peter and John answering the Sanhedrin as to the grounds or authority by which the miracle was done on the blind man. Verse 10 of Acts 4. Peter declares boldly to these opponents, Be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that in the name of Jesus, Christ, and he designates him as the Messiah, the Anointed One of God, of Nazareth, locating him in their physical history, whom you crucified, no one would have disputed that act. They were all witnesses to his death, whom God raised from the dead. Even in him does this man stand here before you whole. This man had been impotent. Now he's restored to whole. I think I said blind. He was crippled. And he was restored whole. How? By the name of Jesus Christ. How could that be? Because God raised him from the dead. You know his history. You know his death. You know this man was crippled a while back and you know now he's healed. There's only one explanation. God raised that man of your territory, of your life, of your history, from the dead. Turn as well to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The writers of Scripture and the Spirit of God do not leave us merely to sweeping statements that we're supposed to accept without question. They give us evidence to support. And as God is prone to do, we are given witnesses in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures and that he was buried, and that he has been raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve, that means the eleven who were called the twelve after Judas had been taken away. They were designated as the twelve, even though there was only eleven of them at that time. Then he appeared to above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain until now, 
but some are fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to the untimely born, he appeared to me. The Apostle Paul also. Appearances over this period of 40 days of the Lord Jesus Christ from Nazareth recognized appearances to multitude. Over 500 at one time had the same illusion at the same time. Independent of each other, they all saw the same thing if it was an illusion. Then turn back again to that wonderful passage in Luke 24 to see again the way the Scripture writers speak and the way the Lord speaks and the way the New Testament speaks of the resurrection. Luke 24, verse 19. The Lord has appeared after his resurrection to these two men going back to Emmaus. You remember their countenance. It was sad. Why was their countenance sad? Well, certainly not because they expected Jesus to rise from the dead. They did not expect any such thing. You would have thought they would be happy that it's been reported by the women that it's the third day and he's out of the tomb and he's risen. But they're still sad. They're perplexed. They still don't believe. In fact, they don't recognize him in some way we can't understand. He is hidden from their recognition. And in verse 19, in answer to their uh, con- to his concern, he says to them, What things are you talking about? They answer him and say, The things concerning Jesus the Nazarene. We're speaking of a well-known man of our contemporary history here. He's from Nazareth. We know his upbringing. Who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people. And how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that it was he who should redeem Israel. And besides all this, it is now the third day since these things came to pass. Moreover, certain women of our company amazed us, having been early at the tomb. And when they found not his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who had said that he was alive. And certain of them that were with us went to the tomb and found it even so, as the women had said, but him they saw not. A historical account of eyewitnesses of his life, his death, his burial, and his his resurrection. The women have a vision of angels. The men saw the empty tomb, Peter and John. The Lord appears to saints on the road to Emmaus on the same day in the afternoon. The scriptures are clear. Jesus lived. Very few would deny that. Jesus died. Very few would deny that. Jesus was buried. Very few would deny that. It's patently clear from history and from the scripture. But many either ignore or deny that he rose from the dead. He was really dead. Let's make no mistake about it. He really died. He was dead. Turn back to Mark chapter 15 and look at for some, some supporting evidence and how wise the Lord is for us.
to include these passages, anticipating some of the arguments against the resurrection that were going to be brought about by self-appointed brilliant men in history. Mark 15, 44. These two men are Joseph of Arimathea going to ask Pilate for the body that afternoon before sunset. Verse 44 of Mark 15, Pilate marveled if he were already dead. He shouldn't be dead yet. You don't die that quickly by crucifixion. This is amazing to me. He marveled and calling unto him the centurion who was there and did it, he asked him whether he had been any while dead. And when he learned it of the centurion, he granted the corpse of Joseph. An independent Gentile witness the man is dead. I was there. I watched him. I know he's dead. We've pronounced him dead. The death certificate is acceptable. He's dead. The scriptures bear witness to this witness before Pilate. And then in the women in chapter 20 of John that we've been reading, they find the tomb. Now, John only mentions Mary Magdalene, except when she says, we know not where they've laid him. But the other gospel writers tell us there were other women with her as well. John, I believe, has a reason for concentrating on Mary Magdalene. And we'll see that reason as we develop. But the, but the point is, several of the women, there were probably four of them. Mary, the mother of Jesus. Salome, the mother of James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who was Mary's sister. Jesus' aunt. John and James were probably the first cousins of Jesus. Uh, then there was the mother of Joseph and James the less, and then there was Mary the wife of Clopas, or they may have been the same one. And then there was Mary Magdalene. These women went to the tomb. They looked at the tomb. The stone was lifted out of that trench into which that huge round stone had been rolled and dropped. It was out and lying on the side. And when they saw that, they assume that somebody has already stolen the body. And they run. Apparently these other women went somewhere back home. Mary Magdalene went to where she could find Peter. She told him. He and John were together. They fought. They ran to the tomb and she followed. They got there a while before she did. Peter was outrun by John, but Peter forged on into the tomb, unlike John. He saw it. John then went in and saw it. John believed the scriptures that they had not understood became clear to them, and they believed. They left and went home, and apparently just about that time, Mary finally catches up and comes back for the second time to the tomb. Now, that's the narrative. Now, what is Mary's response when she stoops down, looks into the tomb, and sees the two angels? Essentially, she's weeping. The angels ask, why are you weeping? Her answer Somebody stole the body of Jesus. I don't know where he is. We don't know where they've laid him. Then, whatever drew her attention to turn around, she turns around, and when she sees the Lord, he says, Why are you weeping? Whom do you seek? Her answer, I'm looking for Jesus. Somebody's taken his body. Thinking he's the gardener, she said, Please, if you took it, tell me. I'll take care of it. What's the testimony? The man is dead. There's not a one around him that believes he's alive. Why do they believe he's dead? They've witnessed it. The women were up close. 
The women saw where he was buried. The women have been spending the weekend preparing to come early in the morning to add spices and aromatics to his body to show their affection. There's no question the man's dead. Pilate found out he's dead. The centurion testifies he's dead. He was buried. They've wrapped him. They've covered him with a hundred pounds of aromatics. Wrapped him in linens tightly. Glued them at their ends. Covered his head with a burial napkin. Put him aside in a tomb, in a cold, dark tomb. He's dead. History. He really died. Now it's interesting to note, for those who claim that the apostles plotted this whole story, there's certainly no indication at this point there's a plot going on. These guys are sad, depressed. They're not planning for him to rise from the dead. They are planning to go into despair. They have no intention of celebrating a resurrection. They are downcast. There's no sinister plot here. There's a bunch of disappointed people who had hoped that Jesus Christ would be the hope of Israel. They're disappointed. They think he's dead because they know he died. He's been dead. Notice something else that happens. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. They came, remember? And they got the body and they put a lots of aromatics, a hundred pounds of spices. Why? Well, it was the custom in those days that according to your affection for someone who died, you would heap on him expense in his funeral. It was a measurement of your affection. I'm not saying that's a biblical necessity. I don't think it is. But I, it, it was their custom. And when somebody highly esteemed someone, it was not unusual for them to collect all they had to do all they could to give all the affection symbolically to the grave that they could. So Nicodemus and Arimathea, Joseph of Arimathea, who had been secret disciples for fear of the Jews, now boldly went to Pilate, knowing that it would be reported back to the Sanhedrin. They might well be kicked out, might even be excommunicated from the synagogue. They went and asked the body of Jesus. And then they cared for his body, decorating his body with all sorts of great poundage of these aromatic myrrh and spices for his death, wrapped him carefully, took care of the burial, buried him in Joseph's recently hewn out out of stone in a cave in a rich man's grave where nobody had yet lain. Corruption never entered that tomb. There had never been a dead body in there that corrupted. This one didn't either. They took up the body. They prepared it for burial. They buried it in great affection. These are not men expecting a resurrection. These are not people that are wrapping this so the resurrection can prove it was really special when he breaks out of those linens. These men are fixing a man up to protect him as long as they can from the corruption they expect is soon going to set in. These men are sure they take the body. They carry the body. They know it's cold, lifeless form. They can see it's dead. They bury him as a man they expect to remain dead. He really died. Down with the swoon theory. The idea that he pretended to die, he passed out, and later in the coolness of the tomb he came to. That's a, that's a popular theory among unbelievers. The coolness of the tomb revived him. 
and then he went out and lived his life out someplace else in secret. Brethren, the coolness of a tomb does not revive a man who suffered what this man suffered, who had a spear pierced through his side, who perished on the cross of his own voluntary will, and whose closest friends had no thought that he was going to revive. What lengths men will go to to doom themselves and to explain away God's saving work. One of the sweet thoughts that occurred to me about Nicodemus, here he is coming out in the open, being associated with the death and burial of Jesus, not particularly fully expecting the resurrection, but in true devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ as a man unashamed of him. One of the people you may well meet in heaven will be Nicodemus. Don't that be precious? Do you ever think about that? To meet that man who came by night and thought as a Jew he had a right to enter the kingdom of heaven and had to learn from the Lord in his secret coming by night that he had to be born again. There's some encouragement that perhaps he was and the Lord had made him his own. Well, therefore, it says, because of the Jews' preparation, which was the day before their high Sabbath in the Passover week, the tomb was near at hand, they laid Jesus. There was a garden where the cross was, and in that garden a tomb. It was Joseph's tomb. He asked the body, Pilate granted the body, they hastily prepared the body, they took it to the tomb near the cross. They didn't have to lug it very far. They took it down off the cross, however they got it down, we don't know. They took the body, took it into the nearby tomb, laid it to rest. There they laid Jesus. Let some of those words sink in sometimes. What would you have felt carrying that body and laying it in a grave? And remember, they didn't expect the resurrection. He was dead. What a sight. But he not only really died and really was buried, he really arose. Even the differences of the scripture accounts support the claim of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Ask a question. If these folks plotted this thing, they did a poor job of plotting. Because they have allowed four, five, or six separate witnesses that on the surface often appear to contradict themselves in the Bible. Have you ever thought of that? Have you ever heard of some of the apparent contradictions between the gospel writers? One lists this person and one says this happened and one says it seems that the other happened first and they get it all mixed up and the unbeliever finds that stuff easy to swallow. He's, he just has a magnet that draws him to those apparent discrepancies and he delights in them and writes books on them. One modern Jewish man, Schoenfeld, has written a book, a couple of books, one called The Passover Plot, uh, another called uh, The, uh, I think he called The Incredible Christians, or something relating to how the Christians lived their lives out and how they pulled off this scam of the resurrection of Christ. There's nothing new under the sun. The first generation of Jews when this happened reported widely that they'd stolen the body and the disciples had plotted the whole thing. A sophisticated effort gone to by a man, dedicating much of his life to disprove the resurrection of Christ. Answer this. If these people plotted this, 
they weren't very careful about the witnesses. When you're planning to cover up your tracks, you make sure your witnesses have the same story in the same way. He said, now remember, it was at 9.13 that we saw the bus drive away. Don't forget that, because that's what I'm going to tell them. You've got to tell them the same thing. Don't say 9.20 or it's going to look like we're lying. That's the way you do when you're covering up something. These fellows have no such apprehensions. They just, each witness is freely allowed to give his account of how he saw it and how he, how he views it. Now, there are no contradictions, but it takes a little work to find that out. You don't see that on the surface. God sets a trap for the scoffer. The Lord is wise. If you want to disbelieve, there's plenty of opportunities to do so. The Lord sees to it that if you're disposed to disbelieve, he provides you the rope to hang yourself. He does it a lot. You watch your attitude. God will let you fall into your trap. He'll provide you steps and light to guide your way if you want to fall into a trap. The early church had no problem with these apparent contradictions. They put them all in the same Bible together. You would think that if they saw real problems here, they would have changed them around a bit. Left a couple of them out so we can have a consistent witness. That's not the case. Because they had no problem with the resurrection. Don't worry about those that rest the scripture to their own destruction. He really arose. They go into the tomb and this body that had been stolen was out of the grave cloth. Whoever stole this body unwrapped it first. Opened up its gory death and carried this exposed body out with them. You do that? That's not the way you hastily before dawn steal a body. You ever think of that? There are lots of evidences here. You have to become a fool to deny the scriptures. Thieves don't run in and carefully lay grave clothes over on the side, roll up the head sweatband napkin over and lay it neatly aside and take out this naked body. That's not the way they would do it. They would have dragged it out just as it was, minimized the time, and gotten it someplace else before they did this. Would they not? Well, we could go on and on. Some men go to great lengths to disprove it. But we're not here to try to prove it this morning. Jesus said to the disciples, Because you have seen, you believe. Blessed are they that have not seen and have believed. He pronounced a special blessing on generations of Christians who believe in his resurrection, though they did not physically see him alive. You have special privileges and a special blessing upon you if you believe on the risen Lord. You're not an eyewitness, as the apostles were, as the 500 were, but you believe. Blessed are, are they who have not seen and have believed, because this is a matter of faith. Now let's make that clear. Before we conclude the sermon, let's understand it. You will never be a Christian because you become convinced by philosophy and logic that the things are true. That will not be the way. Whatever great strength that C.S. Lewis has in his writings and whatever great help he is to many of us, sometimes he gets very close to equating Christianity with insight and intelligence and study and thought. And for him, it's very near 
when he even speaks of his conversion, which comes the closest to a, to a testimony of a new birth in him, he speaks of it as, as a process from one philosophy to a better, and finally he decided that the Christian way was the best and the wisest and the most intelligent. There's a danger in that. I'm not suggesting he wasn't a Christian, but that process is dangerous to, to equate believing on Christ with believing external evidences. The external evidences God has supplied for one generation of Christians. That is true. We have to believe their testimony, though. The evidence we have, they say it. Brethren, I heard on my radio this morning as I was looking for some gospel preaching while I was shaving, a man uh, giving the apparitions of Mary again down in New York and Long Island. I didn't hear it for long, but it was there. Some people saw it. That's what the New Testament in Second Thessalonians calls lying wonders. They've been supplied as counterfeits to the real thing. You take your pick. You get more excited about an appearance of Mary down near New York City in the 1900s or the resurrection of Jesus 2,000 years ago. Which one of them has more chance of saving you from your sins? You see, the lying wonders are always performed to get you to follow the, the thing that's, that's in, but it has no saving value. Somebody has a splinter off the cross that's been blessed. Can that save you? Whether there's a splinter off the real cross or not, it matters not, does it? What matters is who died there and what did he accomplish when he did and does it make any difference to me? I don't want a part of the cross. I want all of the cross. And I don't want it hanging around my neck or in my backyard. I want it in my heart. The Lord Jesus Christ is to be known by faith. It's a fact of history, but it's more than a fact of history. It's the truth of history. It's the fulcrum of history. History is built around it. The whole world today dates itself, or most of it dates itself around this man, his cross, his resurrection. You can't see a calendar in most places without the Lord Jesus being the denominating factor behind the dating of the calendar. The knowledge of the Lord covers the world as the waters cover the sea. They don't know it, but they're giving glory to God when they speak of 1991 A.D. In the year of our Lord. The whole world says it all the time. Hateful, atheistic writers put A.D. 1963 in their materials and give praise to the Lord without knowing it. Well, just a brief survey. Now let's examine the two points, and I want to go quickly for your sake. First, the moral necessity of the resurrection. Remember, you're not going to become a Christian by logically figuring it all out. It's going to be by faith. When God opens your heart and you see Christ in the heart for what He is, you'll know then. You won't need any of the other proofs. You'll grow weary with some of the efforts to prove it. You'll become in love with Him. Can we use that phrase? And you won't be able to explain it, but you'll know. But we want to speak of the moral necessity of the resurrection. And there are three things I want to say about it. And I'm going to try to go quickly because our time is so advanced. First, the Lord had to rise from the dead. You remember what it said in Acts 2, what we read in Peter's sermon. It was not possible that he should be held by death. It was not possible 
for him to be held by death. And I saw that and I asked the question, why? Why was it not possible? I ask why a lot. Sometimes I get answers and sometimes I don't. I called a couple of resident systematic theologians and asked them, why? Why could death not hold him? What is the theological point behind that statement? Help me. And we put our brains together and we thought of passages of Scripture and we came up with a few strong possibilities. One is irrefutable. The first reason that Jesus had to rise from the dead was that it fulfilled the Scriptures for him to do so. What? That's right. In John chapter 20, verse 9, we read that John and Peter did not yet know the Scripture that he must rise from the dead. They didn't know the Scripture that said he must rise from the dead. Now, one of the reasons that he had to rise from the dead is in order to fulfill the Scripture. We read in 1 Corinthians 15, raised the third day according to the Scriptures. He was raised according to the Scriptures. He says to the, those two men in, to, to Emmaus in Luke 24, 44, Wist you not that it behooved the Christ to suffer these things and to enter His glory? And beginning with Moses and through all the Old Testament Scriptures, He read and opened to them the things concerning Himself. That the Scriptures might be fulfilled. <coughs> it has to happen. Turn to Matthew chapter 26, verse 54. Matthew twenty six fifty four. The Lord lived his whole life cognizant of the scriptures fulfillment and the necessity for the fulfillment of the scriptures. In Matthew twenty six fifty four, he's answering the question about uh, Peter's effort to defend him in the Garden of Gethsemane and his arrest, and he says. Verse 54, how then should the scriptures be fulfilled, that thus it must be? Peter, if you kill everybody that's trying to arrest me and put me to death, how are we going to fulfill the scriptures? If you didn't have the rest of your Bible, you would come to the conclusion that the only concern he had was just making sure the scriptures came true. Well, it's not the only concern, but certainly that comprehends the whole concern. The scriptures must be fulfilled. Why? It's one of the internal evidences for the veracity, authenticity, authority, infallibility, and inerrancy of the Word of God. The Scriptures say they must be fulfilled. Why? Because they're God's words. God cannot speak and it not come to pass. It's impossible. The Scriptures must be fulfilled. They must. It's a moral, universal necessity. When God speaks it, it must happen. It cannot be otherwise. Turn back to the Old Testament, to Psalm 16. Because you may have asked, what scripture? Well, in John's Gospel, chapter 20, it uses the singular, the scripture. In 1 Corinthians 15, it says scriptures. It could be that John was relating to one passage. 
Certainly Peter identifies a singular text when he expounds this doctrine in Acts chapter 2. He goes back to Psalm 16. And in Psalm 16, verse 8 and following, this is a messianic psalm. I have set Jehovah always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also shall dwell in safety, for thou wilt not leave my soul to Sheol, the place of the dead. Neither wilt thou suffer thy Holy One to see corruption. Thou wilt show me the path of life. Now that's quoted in the New Testament as referring to the Lord Jesus Christ under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and the, under the revelation of the Spirit the New Testament apostles understood this text to be the prophecy of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead other passages in the Old Testament I think will not turn to them but Psalm 2 quoted in Acts 13 in reference to the resurrection this day have I begotten thee thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek Psalm 110 I will give you the nations for your inheritance. Uh, uh, the, the passages of the Old Covenant where the Father pronounces to the Son his devotion to him, his pledge to him, to give to him that which apart from the rising of the dead could not be. But finally, Psalm 118. And we're not, we're not fighting or reading Isaiah 55, Isaiah 53, and other passages that could easily support the claim that the Old Testament predicted that the Messiah would rise. You see, the reason they didn't believe it, or they didn't understand those passages, is because they didn't believe it. They didn't believe on Him as He is. And so when they read those texts, those texts didn't say to them what those texts really said. Spiritual blindness is the problem of our generation with the Bible. It's not that the Bible is not clear and too hard to understand. It's not even the King James that's causing the problem. If anything, it's our poor educational system that made us unable to read good English. Shakespearean English, which every educated Englishman ought to be able to read fluently. The Bible's not unclear except to them that want to be unclear. It's unclear to the unclear heart. You want to know the Bible? You want to understand the Bible? You have to have a new heart. You have to discern things spiritually. The natural man cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God. This is not going to happen by a nice academic study. It has its place, but that's not going to reveal the truth of Scripture. God has to open your heart. God's got us over a barrel here. You cannot control the Scriptures. You cannot determine the outcome of your reading of the Scriptures. You're always cast on God. Cry to God for opening your eyes, for opening your heart. He will do so when you ask, but you must ask. And when he does it, you know the difference. Well, in Psalm 118, which we believe perhaps made up a portion of the hymn that the Lord and his disciples sang out as they left the Lord's Supper that last night and went out across the brook Kidron to Gethsemane. This would have been a typical Passover hymn. The, uh, I think they call it the Hallel, which they sang frequently at the Passover. This passage, and I, I, I love to believe that that's what they were singing. The Lord leading them in a hymn as they left that room and went out to the suffering of 
Gethsemane and Golgotha. Look at verse 22. The stone which the builders rejected. Now note the Lord is singing this. Is become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. The builders rejected him. He's put to death. But the thing put to death becomes the head cornerstone of the new building of living stones. This is the Lord's doing. This is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Dear brethren, that is the Old Testament statement of the resurrection of Christ from the dead and of the Christian Sabbath day. First day of every week in which we rejoice in the resurrection. It's one of the grounding texts for the change of the day from the seventh to the first. And many don't understand that in their argument. It's a delightful thing, though, to understand that he had to rise from the dead because the scriptures said he would and said he must. Let us let it stay at that. God had to fulfill the scriptures, his word. Second, he had to rise from the dead, I believe, because of his holiness. His purity. His undefiled person. What do I mean by that? Well, Acts chapter 2, verse 27, in the opening up of that passage by Simon Peter, Thou wilt not suffer thy Holy One to see corruption. There seems to be a link there between the holiness of Christ and not suffering corruption. You say, what are you talking about corruption? I'm saying Jesus died, but he never decayed. Not the first cell of his body ever began to decay. He never started to rot. That's what I'm saying. That's what the scriptures say. Thou wilt not suffer thy holy one to see corruption. He did not see corruption. You know why? He couldn't. It was not possible for death to hold him so that he suffered its continuing pangs. It was not possible for death so to get him that he endured all of its ultimate power because once he tasted death and securely died, death had no more power over him. For us, death holds and we, we decay. For Christ, death holds not. It cannot touch his body you see, he didn't die of natural causes. He didn't die of a decaying, diseased body. He didn't die of the wounds. He died, remember? He gave up his spirit. He willfully died. He died for sinners. Now you say, well, Pastor, now wait a minute. You're saying that Jesus was impeccable and that he was untouched by sin. Hebrews 4.15 says he was without sin. But what about 2 Corinthians 5.21 when it says God made him to be sin for us. He who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Well, I admit there's a mystery, but let me suggest what I believe we're saying. He did not become a sinner. He became so close to sin as one could possibly be identified without himself becoming defiled by it. He never 
took personal defilement. What he took was the guilt of our sin. It was imputed against him, not personally, physically infused into him so that he as a person is now defiled. That absence of defilement and his holiness makes it impossible for him to see corruption. He cannot be. You say, that's a little bit hard for me. It is for me too. I suggest it to you and I have good support from some wiser men than myself. He bore our sins imputed against him by God the Father. It would have been impossible for Jesus to become the sinner by somehow getting my sins into himself. That's not the, that would be against nature. There's no natural way for me, my sins to be his sins. But there is a supernatural way for my sins to be counted against him. Therefore, he had to pay its penalty in death. And yet, once death was satisfied, he tasted death for every man, but never succumbed to its ongoing pains. He didn't see corruption. Impossible. His holiness prevented it. But lastly, the moral necessity of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Justice. The justice of God demanded it. Not only were the scriptures fulfilled by it, and the holiness of Christ required it, but the justice of God demanded it. How so? Because when he died, his death was unique, unlike the death of any other son of Adam who has ever lived in this world. This man's death accomplished something that made it necessary for his father to raise him from the dead. What did he accomplish? His death killed death. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? Why? Where does death get, where does sin get its sting? Remember 1 Corinthians 15? The sting of death is what? Sin. Sin stings. And sin has venom in it. And that venom kills. Death gets its sting from sin. The sting that kills is sin. Why? Then the question is asked by the Apostle. Where is the strength of sin? How does sin get its venom? How can sin kill? How can the sting, the bite of sin, kill? Sin gets its strength from the law. The law says, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. In the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. God's law gives sin the power to kill. Do you understand that? Sin cannot kill unless sin transgresses a law that has attached to it the penalty of death. It is the penalty of death upon the breaking of the law that enters in when sin is committed. Sin is a transgression of the law. And when this law is broken, God's law is broken, then the sting of the sin puts to death because the law requires it. The strength of sin is the law. Where there is no law, sin is not imputed. But law is there. God's law has been broken and God's law says you sin, you die. So when you sin, 
one time, if all you ever did was take a bite of a fruit that God said don't do, you die. The law requires death for sin. Death came into the world. For one man sinned, and thereby sin entered the world, and death by sin, for that all sinned when he sinned. The law gives strength to sin. I don't mean that sin in its virility is, it needs to borrow from someone else to be strong. The strength of sin to kill you, it gets from the law which says the penalty of sin is death. So how did Jesus put to death death? He removed the strength of sin. He took the venom out. How? O death, where is thy sting? Where is sin's ability to kill now? It was swallowed up on the cross. When Jesus died that death for his people's sins, and the satisfaction of the requirement of the law was met in full. There is no more law crying for vengeance against the believer in Christ. There's no more condemnation. Sin has no more sting to kill. It stung him and killed him and therefore cannot kill those who are in him. They've already died. Substitute. The strength of sin is the law, but Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to all who believe. He has satisfied his death, you see, accomplished the just requirements of God's holy law and satisfied that law's penalty and sanctions to the full. He drank the dregs of the law's penalty to the leaves. And he died and satisfied it. Once that was done, death could not hold him. It first couldn't keep him because of his personal undefilement. Now it cannot keep him because justice has been served and it would be utterly unjust for this sinless one to remain dead. Death has lost its grip. He said, I don't quite follow you. Why then do people who believe in Jesus still die? The only answer I can give is the answer of the scripture in 1 Corinthians 15. Each in its own order. Christ the firstfruits. Afterward, they that are Christ's at his coming. In God's wisdom, which we best not question, he is determined not to remove the corruption of personal death from every believer when he believes upon Christ. He's allowed our bodies to return to the dust because from dust we came. Somehow that makes us have to live by faith, doesn't it? How do you know that he that lives and believes in Jesus has passed from death unto life? And though he die, Yet shall he live. Well, you see, if you believe in Jesus, you have that confidence. If you don't believe in Jesus, you're scared to die. He delivered us from the fear of death by death. 
The reason death could not hold him is that once the justice of God has been satisfied in him, there is no more justice to be meted out. Death has lost its power. It's impossible for him to be held by death. Scripture, personal holiness, the justice of God. Meditate on that a while. But quickly, think of the blessed fruit of the resurrection. We've had a little brief theological study. Let's get down to a personal application. The blessed fruit. And I'm just going to concentrate on one blessed fruit. Hope. Remember 1 Peter chapter 1. The man who denied the Lord three times before dawn in this wicked trial process. And then went out and wept bitterly when it became keen to his conscience what he'd done. This man writes in 1 Peter He has begotten us again to a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I love the history of Peter because he blows it as badly as you can blow it. He denies Christ, brethren. If you did that today, there would be little hope held out for you to ever be brought back. It's a desperate thing he did. But then three days later, he says to Mary, Go tell Peter and the others. And I'm alive. And I go before them to Galilee, just as I promised them. Why single out Peter? Well, there's two or three things need to happen inside Peter. He needs to have it, the force of what he did come home to him, and he also needs to have the blessed mercy of Christ come home. I'm back, tell Peter. This was not, tell Peter I'm out. That's not that. This was not an escaped convict coming back for vengeance. This is a man who wants this man who's been grieving for two and a half days to know the Savior's risen from the dead and his denial did not cost anything ultimately to the saving of the world. Peter did not blow the redemptive work of Christ in his denial. What a blessed hope that it begets again. We've been begotten again to a living hope. Can you imagine what went through that man's mind as he began to realize that Jesus is alive? This man who no doubt was in some great consternation and perhaps even despair. He lives! Well, Mary Magdalene is what I want you to follow. John mentions only her, focusing on her rather than all the other women present. She leaves and runs to Peter. She weeps, as we've seen. She's asked, why are you weeping? It's because she can't find the body. Now notice throughout all this how this woman loves Jesus. He's dead, and she loves him. She's utterly devoted to him. Another passage tells us that she was one of the women who traveled with him and ministered to him of her substance. She gave everything she had and committed her whole life to helping out the ministry of Christ. She, she shared her money wherever she got it. She and the other women. Whatever they income they had or wherever they had their money, they shared it with Christ and his ministry. She was devoted to him. Now he dies. He's gone. She's sad, but she still loves him. In fact, she calls him her Lord. I know not where they've laid the Lord. They've taken away my Lord. I know not where they've laid him. She's not offended. She's not mad at him. She's still deeply affectionate toward him and wants to do the best she can with whatever there's left of him to show her devotion. She's come to anoint the body with spices herself. She loves him. Oh, how she loves him. You know why? You remember how, why? What is it in, in Luke 13 or one of the, or Matthew, one of the other Gospels? Mary Magdalene, out of whom the Lord cast seven demons. 
He who is forgiven much loves much. Do you know why some of you don't love Jesus very much? You know why your heart doesn't throb? You know why you don't get fervent? You know why you have to stretch and push yourself just to feel anything? Because you don't know how rotten you are. You don't know how many demons he cast out of you. You don't know where you'd be if he hadn't come into your life. You take him so for granted. We lose grips on our affections for him so quickly. We let the least little disruption or distraction draw out of us all sorts of complaints and worries and fears and panics and we forget him just like that. Because we forget what he's done for us. You ever get a good grip on what you are as a sinner and you'll love Jesus when you understand that he saved you. Don't be afraid and don't resist preaching on sin. And don't resist the conviction of the Word of God on sin. And do not be angry that your sins keep being brought up. Dear brethren, the more you know how sinful you are, the more you'll love the Savior. I didn't come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. I didn't come to be a physician for healthy people but for sick people. And they always love their doctor when he's healed them. Oh, doctor, what can I do? What can we say? How can I express my thanks? This woman was filled with beside herselfness for Jesus. You want to know how to get there? Just study your Bible and find out how rotten you are. And then look at those passages that tell you he has washed away your sins and loves you. You won't, unless you're a dead pan, unless you're dead meat, you'll have no problem being devoted to Jesus. Listen to her condition. She's filled with gratitude for the compassion of the Lord and her, his forgiveness of her great sin. He's casting out the demons and delivering her. She's utterly devoted to him. She's deeply grieved over his death and the sinister stealing away of his body. She comes to anoint it, to prepare it with spices, to show her deep affection, and she wants to find this body. It's all she can think about. And then she stoops and looks into the tomb one last time. And there are two white men in there, clothed in white, filled with white, representing the light and the truth and the purity of God's presence and revelation of these two angels one sitting at the head and one sitting at the feet where Jesus had been. Ask her what she's weeping about. Now, it's, it's surprising to me, frankly, that at that stage she didn't leap into joy. But she's still weeping. She's still weeping. And when whatever happens behind her draws her attention, she turns around and there's Jesus standing. She still doesn't think it's Jesus. She's still not expecting that these angels are there to announce her. She's still not listening. She's still weeping. Remember when he said, Mary, she turned? See what she has already said to the gardener. If you took the body, tell me where it is, I'll get it. And she's already turned away from it. She's kind of gazing back in the tomb or something. Again, or perhaps she's going to walk away. Please tell me. She's so sad and so overwrought with grief that she doesn't even think he's going to answer. So she turns to get away. And he says, Mary. Literally, Miriam in the Aramaic rendering of the word and the word the way he had always talked to her and no doubt now in a tone that was unmistakably his she recognizes the Lord 
turns back. Now you put yourself in that place. All this time, the one man that made the difference in her life is dead. The hope of Israel has been killed. All she wants to do is whatever is left to show affection to this departed loved one. That's all she wants. She still loves him. He's still the Lord, though he's dead. But she has no conception of what she has in him. She's still weeping. And then he calls her name. I couldn't read this passage without being overcome. I was scared to preach it for losing my control for your sake. I tell you, you have you heard him call your name? Have you recognized the voice of the risen Savior to your heart? There's not a sweeter sound. There's not a more liberating sound in the world than for your Redeemer to speak your name in redemptive love. You need to learn to hear His calling your name. And dear brethren, when the Scripture says that all who come to me I'll receive and in no wise cast out, when the Scriptures must be fulfilled and they say everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, hear your name in it. In the old days we used to and went out to bear witness in the bus stations and in the train stations and high school and junior high school we passed out tracts and we preached on the streets and we witnessed to people we used to one of our arguments was whenever you read whosoever will put your name in that slot in that little slot there if Dean will he will if Bill will Christ will if you believe whatever your name is the Lord calls you Paul said he loved me and he gave himself for me when he calls your name does that not well up do you see that he has called your name and I'm talking more than just an invitation I mean redemptively has that come to you I'm not speaking of an audible voice I hope you understand that I'm speaking of a spiritual voice through the Word of God that is unmistakable to those that heard it. Now, you look back. Some of you have forgotten what it was like when God saved you. That's one of the reasons you're so boring and dull. You've forgotten how precious it was. You need to go back to Bethel, some of you, where you first met God, and spend a little time there, and get back to the simple things. And remember how it was when you were a little child. Some of us were converted as children I was 10 I still remember it. I remember the Sunday school morning I remember my teacher I, he'd been saying it for months and I'd never heard him say it and he said you need to believe in Jesus or you're going to go to hell when you die only Jesus can save you and it hit me that's me and I went home and I said mother I want to be saved I need to be saved what do I do she called the pastor and Pastor Brooks Wester came on Saturday and sat down with us in our living room. And we got on our knees by our couch and we read Romans 9 and Romans 10. And we read John 3.16 and Romans 3.23 and Romans 6.23 about our sin and the gift of God through Christ. And we got on our knees and bowed our heads and asked the Lord to save us. My brother and I, beside us. You know, it stuck with me. It stuck. It, it took Remember how they used to give you the vaccination and they checked a few weeks to see if it took? Mine took. It took. 
God saved me. I remember how simple that was. I remember how thankful I was. I couldn't get baptized that Sunday night. I caught the measles between the time I was saved and the time they were going to baptize. I had to wait three weeks. Caught double pneumonia. Was laid up in bed. Was put off my baptism so that I ended up being the only one baptized that day. And I thought, boy, Lord, that's just the way I feel. I feel like I'm the only person in the world. I didn't feel that selfishly. I just thought his love for me was for me. I still remember how I did for me. There was no question who I was going to serve. I already was telling my parents, I'm going to preach. I want to tell everybody about this. I was 10. They laughed it off, and I didn't take it too seriously, I suppose. I thank God that he let me keep my desire and stand and preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. You need to remember what it was like when you found Jesus. You didn't understand a whole lot of stuff you understand today. That's true. Some of it you had all mixed up. But you knew you were a sinner, and you knew he was the Savior, and you believed upon him, and he saved you. And when you get that back into your heart again, and when you cultivate that, it's going to drop off some of this junk out of your life like autumn leaves. Some of your deadness is going to come to life again, or you need to question whether anything ever happened. May God help us to recall how gracious and sweet he has been to us the way Mary Magdalene did. Mary. And then she runs and grabs him. When Jesus calls you to himself and makes you your own, you ought to want to grab him too. You ought to want to shout hallelujah for the rest of your life. And you ought to be grieved when you don't and when you can't. And you ought to make yourself get back in the spirit of the hallelujah. And if whatever it takes to cultivate that, you need to employ it. And you need to get rid of whatever distractions there are that are keeping you from worshiping him and loving him. But one last thing here about Mary. And we could go forever with Mary. Remember, he says, don't touch me. Why would he do that? He let the other women grab him around the feet and hug him. He told Thomas to start thrust his hands in his side. And he says, what's the, what's the problem with Mary Magdalene? Mary thinks that he is now back to carry on what they've been doing for the last two or three years. She thinks, ah, oh, he's not dead. She doesn't even real think of the theological implications. He's back. Oh, you're back. Great. Let's go minister again. Let me minister my substance to you. What a thrilling thing. Oh, she's overjoyed, but she doesn't see the full picture. She is, as it were, clinging to him to stay in this world so she can continue to love him at this level. But the scriptures speak of, in 2 Corinthians 5, the fact that we no longer know Christ after the flesh. Though we used to, we don't any longer. We know him after the Spirit. Remember what he said to Mary? Don't hold on to me. I have not yet ascended to my Father. This isn't the end. Mary, you know, what, it's been sweet for you these two years, but you don't know what's out for you when I send the Spirit. I've got more blessing for you than you have ever had in the presence of my flesh. Greater works than these shall you do because I go to my Father. That's the point. What he's saying is, there is a special and more precious nearness to Christ enjoyed by those who have the Spirit than ever was enjoyed by those who just had Him in the flesh. Don't ever think that if you could have walked those dusty roads and seen Him and known Him, you'd have known Him better and loved Him more. That's not the way it works. 
Multitudes were with him and didn't even know him. He is in the Spirit. And he must be known in the Spirit. That's the difference between a true worshiper and a false one. Those that worship in spirit and in truth, who do not need visible aids, but who see him by faith, and who will not spoil his worship by the complications of idols, but are content to know him whom they've never seen and love him. Mary, don't hold me here. I'm going to go to a place where I'll become more precious to you, and your life will be more sweet, and my nearness will be closer to you. I'm with you. He shall be in you. Do you know the inness of Christ for yourself? Do you know what it is not only to be in Christ, but to have Christ in you? We make it clear, you children. You've been very patient. I've preached for an hour and five minutes, and you've been very patient. Listen, you children. The Lord Jesus loves children. And when you believe upon him with your heart, truly believe upon him and know that he alone can save you, and when you entrust your sinful little life to him, and confess to him that you have sinned against him and you need him to save you and ask him to save you from your sins I will not require nor does the Bible require of you a great deal more knowledge than that he will save you and it will stick my heart my heart's desire for many of you young men you boys who haven't even reached the age of puberty yet, who have not even begun physically to be men, is that 20, 30 years from now, some of you young men in this place will be able to do what I'm able to do this morning and be able to tell a crowd of people here or someplace else, somewhere, it's stuck for me. I remember the day Jesus called my name and I ran and embraced him. Some of you grown-ups, can you testify, I know the Lord. I've seen the Lord. I've met the Lord. One lady sang a song, I don't remember who wrote it, but an old, one of those old gospel songs. I never traveled far around the world. I never saw the many sights and thrills unfurled. But I have traveled one journey that's transformed my life. I've been to Calvary. and the empty tomb. Have you? There's nothing else important besides that in the world. That covers it all. The rest of it falls into line after that. Have you? Do you know the Lord Jesus in the Spirit? Have you been made to love one who has delivered you from your sins? Oh, you need delivering. Have you come to see that he delivers sinners, loves sinners? What a friend of sinners. If you've not, obey his invitation. Call upon the name of the Lord, and you shall be saved. Call upon the name of the Lord, the living Lord, and the one who rose from the grave, 
will conquer everything against you. All your sin, he's able to remove. He lives to save sinners. Bow with me. Our Father, even stumbling, trembling lips are delighted to speak what we have spoken. And the message of Christ and the cross and the empty tomb overcomes and transcends our feeble efforts. Oh, how we glory at the feet of him who lives to make intercession for us. We pray, O God, that you would take up the slack left in our preaching and make the gospel come home true to many in this room this morning, whether visitor, member, or child. We pray, O Lord, you would open the heart and set the sinner free. O God, call our name and make us to walk with confidence and assurance in our Redeemer. Free us from this world, from our love of it, from its clutches, and make us to know the one who lives and is coming again. We admit and confess and acknowledge, O Lord, we're utterly dependent on you for any work of grace in this hour. Come and do a work for your own glory and namesake. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.